1: This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through Colossians.
0: Real love is calling, listen, opens up your eyes. Mercy is with every
2: sunrise. The other writings of Paul and the other writers of the epistles inspired by uh, the Holy Spirit give credibility and lend veracity to those supernatural things. Embrace it. Pray for it. But if you are seeking supernatural things that have no biblical basis by which to judge those things, you're dangerously seeking things that in fact may not be of God.
1: Be careful of what supernatural things you are seeking after. In today's message from Pastor Gary, he encourages you to be cautious when it comes to seeking after the supernatural. Make sure that whatever you're seeking is actually of God. Everything about God can be backed up by His Word. Pastor Gary explains that there is a lot of false teaching out there in the world. It can be easy to fall prey to false teachers and their deception. But if you stay in the Bible, the Holy Spirit will illuminate what is of God and what's not. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of Colossians chapter 1 with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection.
2: There were three main philosophies that influenced humanism in the first century. And these philosophies date back to the 3rd and 4th centuries B.C. So you have Stoicism, that's one, 3rd uh, century B.C., which basically taught that logic and reason were supreme. Do you know any Stoics today who really think that logic and reason is supreme? And they esteem knowledge, logic, and reason more than they do God. And then, then you have, of course, Platonism, which is, is the philosophy of Plato, Plato was the student of Socrates. Aristotle was the student of Plato. So you have Socrates, Plato, Aristotle. You know, there was a lot of spirit talk. Plato talked about God or gods because there was a lot of spiritual talk, but the emphasis was on mankind and, and not on certainly the God of the Bible. Again, you know, Plato's like the 4th century B.C., but, but what he's emphasizing is not the God of the Bible, but that spirit is good, matter is evil. So it's that philosophy of spirit talk, but it's really, again, man is the chief end of things. Have you ever noticed how those kind of thinkers have one name? It's like Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, Oprah. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> Just like, I don't know, maybe Plato will run for president too. I don't, I don't know. You know, Bono, Madonna. You know what I mean? It's just people who have one name seem to have this kind of philosophy that man is the chief end of things, and, you know, it's all about logic and reason, so, so you have that. And then you have Epicureanism, a philosophy started by Epicurus, 3rd century B.C., and, and he basically taught that pleasure is the sole intrinsic good, but it has to be simple pleasure like friendship, knowledge, and tranquility. We don't, we don't want to overindulge. And so it's just simple pleasure, but these kind of things were floating around. Now, it's, it's obviously morphed a little bit over the ages, and so now humanism, we actually have secular humanism today, which is not just a, a concept that's actually recognized religion in our country, and secular humanism basically teaches that there are no supernatural beings, that we only live this life, there is no afterlife that human beings derive their moral code from life lessons, past experiences, and thought, the idea that we have the right and responsibility to give meaning and shape to one's own life, no other outside authority, and that human experience and rational thinking provide the only source of both knowledge and a moral code to live by. If you, many of you have done, you know, your homework in this area of humanism and secular humanism. In 1933, there was the uh, Humanist Manifesto One, and then it was revised in 1973, the Humanist Manifesto Two. And then in 2003, it was a document written called the Humanist Manifesto Three, otherwise known as Humanism and Its Aspirations. It was subtitled Humanist Manifesto Three. There are a lot of secular humanists in our world today who actually identify as secular humanists. Uh, not just today, but over, over the, the past, uh, last century. And we have people like Walt Whitman, the poet, Mark Twain, the author, they identified as secular humanists. Bill Nye, the science guy. The doctrine of the Humanist Manifesto 3 has seven bullet points, and I'll just read them to you. Here's, here's one. Knowledge of the world is derived by observation, experimentation, and rational analysis. That's how knowledge is gained. Number two, humans are an integral part of nature, the result of evolutionary change, an unguided process. They make that point. That Number three, that ethical values are derived from human need and interest as tested by experience. It's all about experience. That life's fulfillment emerges from individual participation in the service of human ideals. Uh, Number five, that humans are social by nature and find meaning in relationships. Number six, that working to benefit society maximizes individual happiness. And number seven, respect for differing yet humane views is an open, secular, democratic, environmentally sustainable society. So again, it's all about experience, knowledge, reason, logic. It's devoid of God or any kind of a a spiritual sense of authority or a moral code outside of one's own ability to think and reason that, okay? For himself or herself. So this is humanism. So, you know, even though Paul's writing in the first century, we, we see this kind of philosophy that has crept into our culture, both secularly and religiously. We have, unfortunately, in some churches where they've adopted more of a secular humanist approach to life and elevated the, the view of man and devalued Scripture in the view of God. It's, it's happening in, in, in churches, and it's tragic. And so what Paul is warning about here is something that we don't need to read here and think, well, that was a problem of the first century. This is a problem still in our world and ever increasing so. And we need to be mindful of this in the church. We've elevated man, we've elevated knowledge, we've elevated all this reasoning, we've elevated the environment, we've elevated even the animal kingdom because now we have more value in the spotted owl and the porpoise and whales than we do the unborn baby. And so when this begins to be inverted, what we have now is man is the chief end of all things, man is the center of the universe, man is the solution to man's problem, and it's absent of God. And that philosophy has unfortunately in little doses even crept into the church we have to be mindful of this humanism is still a potential problem that we must be on guard against he says see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on christ there are a lot of principles of this world rather than christ that seek to form your way of viewing things and shape your ideals and ideas and we have to be really vigilant about this kind of thing because there's various ways that our culture will just creep in with little philosophical and and traditional ways of thinking and then they'll lay the guilt trip on you because if you don't go along with this you're a hater you're bigoted you're all these other kind of things that they'll tell you as a Christian, because you stand by a moral code that is not some internal thing. It's 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 God, well, I mean, it becomes internal when you know Christ is your Savior, but it is given to us by revelation of God through his word, and that becomes the compass by which I navigate my life and this messy world. And so we aren't to be given to, this, to the basic principle of this world and the traditions of man. And we have to be wise to this kind of thing, church. We have to be wise to this kind of thing. Now, he goes on in verse 9 and 10, and and particularly into verse 11 through 17, and he's going to talk about now another potential problem, which is legalism. So let me read this verse 9. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. Okay, so Christ is God, and you have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. In him, you were also circumcised. In the putting off of the sinful nature, not with the circumcision done by the hands of men, but with the circumcision done by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, and raised with him through your faith in the power of God, who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us. So here's the second thing that he's going to emphasize here. It's a problematic in the church, and that's legalism, which, which really came about in the early church through Jewish influence that really emphasized this, that it's about rules and regulations that one must follow to be right with God. It's about rules and regulations. Now, he starts out with one of the regulations, and he references circumcision here in the beginning of this passage. And he talks about how you were circumcised, But he says, you you know what? You weren't circumcised in a literal, physical way. You were circumcised in a spiritual way by the cutting away of that sinful part of your heart when Christ came into your life. That God did this wonderful surgery in your heart by cutting away things that were wrong and sinful. So Paul says in a spiritual sense, we've all been circumcised when you come to know Christ because God does his wonderful surgical work in our hearts. But this is very similar. You don't need to turn back there. This is very similar to the problem in Acts chapter 15. When the early church was, you know, people were starting to get saved and coming into faith in Christ, and they were wrestling with this whole idea of, well, what's the proper place of the law in the life of a believer? Because we don't throw out our Old Testament. The moral code is still preserved for us so we can understand the character and the standard of God. But in Acts chapter 15, the council of Jerusalem gathered together some of the early apostles and they they were deciding, you know, what are the important things we need to talk about? And one of the things, one of the reasons that we find that they met about this was because Acts 15 verse 1 says that some men came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the brothers this, unless you were circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, they were called in the first century Judaizers, and Judaizers taught, yes, it's about Jesus if you want to get saved, but it's also about Jesus plus the Jewish rituals. And they emphasized one of those Jewish rituals, circumcision. But further down in Acts 15, it talks about uh, in, in verses um, 10 and 11, it says, now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the backs or the necks of the disciples a yoke that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear. No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. So the Jews actually began to realize that gentiles who were coming into faith did not to be did not need to convert to Judaism in order to really be saved that Jews who were born Jews can believe in Christ and be saved gentiles who were born gentiles can believe in Christ and be saved too that the pathway to salvation is Christ it's not any other ritual or becoming like or converting to it's just knowing Christ and what he's done it's by grace are we saved through faith this Not of ourselves, not of works, lest anyone should boast. We can't take credit for this. This is what God did for us. It's his gift to us. But the problem that was still in the first century church and still exists in some circles today is this guilt trip that you've got to still do things in order to be right with God. And you've got to add to this work of salvation by performing certain rituals and festivals and feasts and rites and practices and traditions in order to really be right with God. And friends, the moment you add anything to what Christ did on the cross, you've just made it a works-oriented approach to God, and any works-oriented approach to God nullifies the cross and totally misses that salvation is a free gift. And you cannot work your way to heaven. And once you, you, you begin to believe that and think to yourself that this is a, this is something I have to do in order to get right with God, the only thing we have to do is respond. That's it. Is respond to what God has done for us by offering His Son Jesus on a cross. Now, I want to do good works, and James talks about this. I want to do good works in response to this salvation that's a free gift. But my motivation now is to do what is right to please God because I love him in response to his first loving me. It is not so that I can get into his better good graces so that he might like me, right? Heaven is not something we gain because of our good works. It is a gift we receive because of the finished work of Christ on the cross. All right, amen? And that's a free gift. So we, we, we buy into this legalism stuff when we start to think we gotta do this, you gotta do that. Now the problem here was we gotta be circumcised. And Paul's like, no, 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 listen. You've been circumcised in a spiritual sense because God cut away that part of your sinful heart when you came to know Christ. So you've been circumcised. So don't, don't get all hung up on the idea of rituals and all these things. And he mentions here, as part of kind of dismantling legalism, he said there's three things that stood opposed to us. Number one was our was our own sins. Look at verse 13. God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. Our sins stood opposed to us. And then also so did the law. Verse 14, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and stood opposed to us. How was it that the law stood opposed to us? How is it that the law of God is against us? Because the law points out the righteous standard of God and the law makes us realize we can't live up to this righteous standard. It's too hard. And God knows that. So that's why he offers a savior. That's why Jesus comes to die on a cross. What did Paul write to the church in Galatia? He said the law was put in effect to lead us to Christ. See, the law should serve to be like a mirror to expose in our own hearts, wow, I'm really messed up. We read the law and we go, wow, I messed up. God's perfect. I'm not. So how how can I compensate for this problem I've got? How messed up I am? And legalism trips in and says, well, you just got to work hard and try to do this and try to do that and try to better yourself. Okay. But the problem is that's not the solution. That's the problem of the Pharisees back in Jesus' day. They thought, if I just work harder and keep the letter of the law more perfectly, then I'll be in good standing with God. And they totally missed the point of the law. The law was to expose my sinfulness and make me cry out for a Savior. The law was intended for, to expose in me how messed up I am and then make me realize, well, I cannot live up to this. This is too perfect, and God is too holy and perfect. I I need help. Yes, yes, you do. And so God, knowing that, sends his son Jesus as a savior to us. You know, when you and I are are sick or have the flu or whatever, and, and we take our temperature with a thermometer, the thermometer does not make us well. The thermometer just simply exposes that we're sick. That's the law. The law cannot make us well. It just exposes how sick we are and how much we need a savior. So legalism is a heresy. Because it's a philosophy that says, I'll just try to work harder to get to God. Paul says, please, please don't, please don't try to do that. Sin was opposed to us. The law was opposed to us. And in verse 15, demonic powers were opposed to us. Because in verse 15, part of what God, what Christ did on the cross was not only did he forgive all our sins, not only did he cancel the written code, verse 15, having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them by the cross. Now, please note the word disarmed. Satan's not defeated, not yet, but he's rendered powerless. He still is active in our world today. Not until Revelation 20 does it speak about how he is bound for a thousand years during the millennial kingdom, but at the end of a thousand years, he's released again. But then at the end of that time, he's thrown into the lake of fire, along with the false prophet and the Antichrist. And so that's when he will be ultimately completely defeated. That's Revelation 20. Right now, he still roams the earth. And he still has influences in our world. But for Christians, he's been rendered powerless for the, by the cross. And Christ has triumphed over them by the cross. So that's why he adds here in verse 16, so don't let anybody judge you by what you eat or drink. It's not about rituals, rules, festivals, or regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things. Those, those things in the Old Testament were pointing. They were just a shadow. They were pointing to who was the one who was to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Found in Christ. Okay? So don't, don't buy the legalism trip. Verse 18. He's going to move into the next heresy here the philosophy that's crept into the church which is mysticism verse 18 he says do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you for the prize i mean there's a strong language i mean the ultimate prize is heaven we can be disqualified why because we're led astray by by heresies and he, and he talks about this heresy is something that delights in false humility the worship of angels. He says such a person goes into great detail about what he has seen and and his unspiritual mind puffs him up with idle notions. He has lost connection with the head, capital H, that's Christ, from whom the whole body supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews grows as God causes it to grow. Okay, so here between verses 18 and 19, he's referring to a philosophy that that is referred to as mysticism. Mysticism is influenced by Eastern thought, and it emphasizes supernatural mystical pursuits, including the worship of angels. He specifically mentions that one, but it can be other types of really supernatural spiritual mystical things. Now, let let me say this up front. Let me qualify what I'm about to say. I think it's Clear in Scripture that God still works in supernatural ways. God still works in miraculous ways. Even as it relates to the things of the Spirit, I believe in all the gifts of the Spirit. I believe they're still available today. God distributes them as He wills. So I don't want to, for a moment, discount the supernatural working of God and the miraculous ways that He is still at work in our world today. But there can be a preoccupation with that. And people can be pursuing the supernatural and they want signs and wonders and they want all this mystical stuff, not as much as they really want Jesus. And I've, and I've known people and I've talked to people and you probably as well know people that are all about the mystical. They're all about the supernatural. They're all about the latest and greatest and, and the most nifty way that God is at work today. Look, I was taught this years ago, and I thought this, and I believe this is good advice. That this is this timeless truth. If you want to test whether something is really legitimate in terms of this, its supernatural reality from God, you have to ask yourself three questions. Number one, did Jesus teach it? Number two, did the early church practice it? Number three, did the epistles support it? Did Jesus teach it? Did the early church practice it? Do the epistles support it? When it passes those tests, embrace it. Because if you know what Jesus taught it, the early church practiced it, the the epistles support it. The other writings of Paul and the other writers of the epistles inspired by uh, the Holy Spirit give credibility and lend veracity to those supernatural things. Embrace it. Pray for it. But if... You are seeking supernatural things that have no biblical basis by which to judge those things. You're dangerously seeking things that in fact may not be of God. Hope
0: is an Jump in and you'll find the cornerstones. Your connection runs towards your new life.
1: Colossians 2, 6-7 says, Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and build up in Him, and establish in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Here at Cornerstone Connection, we are committed to providing teaching that helps you become rooted and build up in Christ. Pastor Gary Hamrick is working through Colossians, and it is full of wisdom that will establish your hearts in the faith. If you want to take this one step further, we have companion resources available for you. These digital study guides are for those who want to learn more about today's message. You can find these resources and so much more on our website, cornerstoneconnection.cc. While you're there, you can subscribe to our podcast or download our mobile app, Hours of Great Teaching from God's Word in the Palm of Your Hand. Cornerstone Connection is a ministry out of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. If you're in the area, check out our website, cornerstoneconnection.cc, to find our location and service time. If you have specific prayer requests, you can send them to us at prayer at cornerstonechapel.net. And remember that we are always giving thanks for you when we pray for you. We can't wait to connect with you again next time at Cornerstone Connection.
0: They say you're a wandering soul. That you've got no place to go. But still you know. But still you know. You're not alone.